You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode with me uh, is our firm's chief investment officer, uh, my dad, Phil Smead. Dad, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me and look forward to a great conversation. Yeah, and this is actually a book that, um, that Bill uh, came across and suggested, and, and so we're, we're excited to do this today. Um, thank you for joining us for this episode. We are going to talk about one of the greatest corners in the history of Wall Street, um, it harks back to the days of Jay Gould, like we just uh, had with, uh, uh, with Greg Steinmetz in his book, and even to the Volkswagen Infinity Squeeze back in 2008. Joining us is Spencer Jacob to discuss his book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Spencer is the editor of the Herd on the Street column at the Wall Street Journal. He joined the Wall Street Journal in 2012. Prior, prior to that, he was with the Financial Times where he wrote the Lex column. He had a prior stint with Dow Jones as well, beginning in 2003. Spencer is a recovering emerging markets analyst from his eight years with Credit Suisse in London and Budapest. He holds a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia University and a BA in political science from Brandeis University. He also is a holder of the New York Press Club Journalism Award uh, that he was given in 2008 for his team's coverage of the Bear Stearns collapse. Um, Spencer, I will start out our discussion by quoting your opening line of your introduction to your book. Quote, I'll never forget the day I found out that my sons were degenerates. End quote. That's how you start your book in the introduction. I can assume the answer to what I'm going to ask you, but what inspired you to write this book? Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, my, my sons uh, actually brought the story to my attention. I mean, none of them work in finance. Actually, my oldest now does work in finance, technically. He's a computer programmer at a fund. But at the, the time of the, this story takes place, the time the sort of the crescendo of the story takes place, he was home because of COVID from college. He was a senior in college. My youngest um, was a, a freshman in high school at the time, and I have one son in between. And he came over to me as I was editing something for the next day's Wall Street Journal the morning of January 25th, 2021, and said, Dad, are you going to write something about GameStop? And he usually does not ask me what I'm, I'm writing about. And, <laughs> and, uh, so I took a look at, at GameStop shares. I had driven him there, you know, about a thousand times and his brothers, you know, because they, they love video games. And you know, I was aware of GameStop, but it, by then it had been losing money for about four years. It was a really small company. I had edited stories about it, but fewer and fewer because it was just, it was like blockbuster video a few years before Netflix put it out of business. Mm -hmm. And so I took a look at the share price and I saw that it had doubled over the past couple of days. And I asked him why he brought it to my attention. And he said that uh, a friend of his, was a boy who I've known since he was in kindergarten with my son, had, had bought the stock uh, because he'd read about it on Wall Street Bets, which is a, a forum on, on Reddit 
very particular investment for him. That's kind of the star of the show here. And it, you know, he had doubled his money. And I, I had been aware of Wall Street bets at that point for about a year. You know, we'd be sitting in the newsroom prior to the pandemic and then, um, you know, sitting on Zoom during the pandemic and some stock would go up for no reason. And we'd be like, oh, yeah, they're talking about our Wall Street bets. And it was all kind of funny to us. We had not really written about it. Most of the stocks that, that had gone up were of this similar ilk. You know, they were sort of maybe even bankrupt, but not doing too well. Or, you know, something like Nikola or whatever, things that really were, were not necessarily like widow and orphan type investments, uh, although sometimes they were. And I, I told my son to tell his friend that he should probably sell it because I, I've seen these things unravel pretty quickly and, and count himself lucky. And he said, no, he's not going to sell. He can't sell, which piqued my interest. Uh, and so I began reading the board and I, I saw mm -hmm. within 10 minutes of reading that something really crazy was going on and about to happen, which was that they were attempting a stock market corner, which those listeners who, who know anything about it, that you can't really do that anymore. You, you haven't been able to do that for about a century because of securities laws. But they were not doing it in an illegal, illegal way. They were doing it in a wide open way, uh, distributed again, you know, across hundreds of thousands of accounts. And they were discussing it on this forum that anyone could have looked at, but no one on Wall Street really bothered to look at until that day. Uh, and then it became the focus of attention and GameStop shares became the most traded security in the world that week. And Near newly put some very big hedge funds out of business and, you know, and spurred congressional hearings, as you remember. Yeah. There's a lot more to the story than that. It's a great story. And I think that this, the story holds a lot of uh, of lessons for, for investors. I learned a lot reporting it. I've been writing about finance for 20 years. I worked in, in, um, in a financial firm uh, for a long time as well before that. So I, I thought I'd kind of seen everything or different flavors of everything. And, and this was brand new to me. And I, I learned a great deal. I thought I understood investor psychology and there was a whole other layer of it that I, I didn't know about at all until I began speaking with experts for this book. So yeah. it's, you know, it, it's, I think you learn a lot from the book and it's also a heck of a story. Spencer, uh, thinking of the financial euphoria books that we learn about, you make earlier reference to the Yahoo stock message boards. I think of it as the AOL chat rooms. When I was fighting against the dot-com bubble in 98, 99, I used to listen to the Motley Fool radio show to get a sense of the pulse of the insanity that was going on there. And could you talk a little bit about how this particular episode that you wrote about compares to those others? Sure. I mean, if you, I think if you go back to the, the first stock exchanges uh, in, in the 1600s, you know, you would have found some characters who were very familiar to you. And, and there had been books, there were books written close to the time, books written in the 19th century, many good books written in the 20th and 21st centuries about that history. You know, you, you had stock touts, you had manias and panics and crashes. And I think the, the underlying thing is that human psychology lends itself to that. You know, people, uh, that, that's why we exist today. Uh, that's why you and I are, are alive and other people aren't alive is because our, our genes were, were shaped by our, our ancestors who, when they heard a rustle in the bushes, were very cautious and would, would panic even if it was a false alarm because nine times out of 10 it was, but one time out of 10 it wasn't. Or when you saw a crowd rushing towards something that might be food, might be a false alarm, might not be anything to eat there, but you would miss out on a meal and, and that meal would allow you to, to pass on your genes. So, you know, humans are, are really susceptible to these things. And of course, you know, instead of stock touts uh, in, during the South Sea bubble, during the, the dot-com bubble, you, ha you had people on message boards touting things or, or outright fraudulently 
pumping things, putting false information, making fake press releases, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so the internet brought a new dimension to it. And naively, you know, I thought that this was just that on steroids, but it, it wasn't. There was a different dimension, different things were going on, both in the world of, uh, of how people buy and sell stocks and in terms of how they communicate about stuff. And I'm not saying, you know, they, the four most dangerous words in, in investing, as you know, is this time is different. But this time really was different in the sense that I, I think that people who are our age and have had our experience completely underestimated the power of social media, the algorithmic nature of social media, how it, it concentrates certain voices and how it can be harnessed and, and how it just things can go viral. And also, we fail to understand the significance of, of being able to trade for free frictionlessly on a smartphone. And then a lot of other social forces that got maybe 20 million young people into the market, into things like crypto too, but also into, into trading stocks during the pandemic. So since he's the central character in your story, um, can you kind of just give kind of a, a primer to, uh, to, to Keith Gill? Sure. I, I trace the story through him and... You know, he was not the mastermind behind this plan. He happens to have made about a thousand times his money. He's a financial planner with a CFA designation from Massachusetts. Uh, for 95% of the story, his whole social media history is laid bare in terms of what he was doing. He, I was probably a PG rated uh, show, so, but he went by the <laughs> uh, name Deep Effing Value on Reddit. So he was anonymous. He went uh, Roaring Kitty on YouTube, also anonymous, you know, didn't say who he was, what he did, but he had a, a CFA. So he was a very different kind of character than the most people who, who did this. Very different in a lot of ways. Uh, same age. Uh, he was right in the kind of sweet spot in terms of the age. And he understood memes and he understood virality. But for most of the time, he owned GameStop because he thought it was a, a good value bet. And he made a very, very extreme bet on it. So instead of just buying the stock, he put essentially a, almost all of his net worth into it and not into the stock, but into uh, call options, very long dated, very far out of the money call options on the stock. So basically a long term bet that it would go above that level it had to it when he first made the bet go up more than 100 percent. And then he even extended that bet and the maturities and the strike price. So it was just a total lottery ticket, but he was very confident in his analysis, although not 100% confident. He really is, I, I could see him, if he was doing this in a different era, being a, a, a really good value investor. And, and that's the kind of the thesis that he had. And he was ignored. You know, value investor, someone who's cerebral on, on the internet today is going to be ignored. And he was mostly ignored, but the people who paid attention to him on, on these message boards kind of mostly ridiculed him. You know, it, when he would double his money, of course, options are very volatile. And then he'd, then he'd see the, his nest egg cut in half or more. And people would say, what an idiot, you should have sold. And I would have done this and you should have done that. And he would just calmly and patiently explain why you shouldn't be emotional and react to things. And he wound up making a bundle. But the reason he made so much money really was in part because of him, but in part because of other people was that, you know, he became the mascot for this group. So as this story kind of approached its climax in late 2020 and early 2021, people noticed him all of a sudden and looked up all of his old posts and rallied around him. And he would begin posting screenshots, not with his name and account number, but screenshots of his E-Trade account with his position. And the fact that he had made so much money and the fact that each day he would post a screenshot and he had not sold inspired millions of people. People would just wait until after the market closed to see if he had sold. And they couldn't believe after having made so much money that he wasn't going to take the money and run. And that proved inspirational for people. And 
that that was the, the phrase diamond hands came from this board. If you have paper hands, then you're weak. You sell. If you have diamond hands, then you hang on and you're strong. And that's what my son told me. My, his friend had to have diamond hands and hold on. And that's, of course, <laughs> what you, need to do, you, want to a, you need to do it, right? You need to to hold and and then just kind of hold that other person over the coals because for anyone not not familiar with how short selling works short selling is the is a totally legitimate practice but short selling and and this stock was sold very deeply short short selling means that you've opened yourself up instead of to an unlimited theoretically unlimited gain and a limited loss of 100% it's the inverse of that the most you can make is 100% if a stock goes to zero if you're completely correct about it going bankrupt but the most you can lose is infinity and so you really better be right and you know if, if you're forced to buy back the stock and the stock price goes goes to an absolutely insane, irrational level as it would during a classic 19th century corner where people snapped it up secretly behind your back. Then you had to pay whatever price there was. You know, Daniel Drew, the 19th century speculator said, you know, he who sells what isn't his and must buy it back or go to prison. That's what happened. No one went to prison, but, you know, you, you could take all of someone's money uh, and they would have to, to pay it to you because they had borrowed the stock and sold it and they had to give it back to whoever they borrowed it from. So that's, that is the situation that they engineered. The prerequisite was that everyone had to be disciplined and, and not sell and have diamond hands. And, and this guy, he didn't come up with the idea of instituting a squeeze. And it was a very particular kind of squeeze. I can go into details if you want. He, he was their mascot. So sure. I traced the story through him. And then I explained all along what's going on. And I, I wrote this book. I mean, finance professionals found it very interesting. But uh, I wrote it for, you know, my mom, for an, an educated person who really doesn't know about finance. I think I, I wrote it in a way that, you know, I don't get too jargony or technical, I hope, and explain it to, to the casual reader and, and explain the significance of these different things that go on in financial markets every single day with your retirement portfolio. When, and to your point, I think you did a really good job of giving average people or anybody that doesn't sit in the investment business um, kind of an insider's feel for what went on. And so I, I agree with you there. One of the things I really felt when I when you're writing about Gil is that it was strange in that he would speak in truths, right? So for example, to your point about people were saying like, oh, you can't lose money taking a profit. And the quote you used from him was, quote, perhaps, but that's not how you maximize returns over the long term, end quote, which is like what you'd expect kind of like a low turnover stock picker to say, not someone YOLOing on deep out of the money calls on a stock that could go bankrupt, <laughs> right? So there's this, there's this kind of, um, it's, I don't know. Schizophrenic it's contrast. It's not a paradox. It's, it's almost a, an irony to the, the virtue he espouses. And yet what he does to take his risk is as far from that virtue as possible. It's it's interesting, right? Yeah, he. I don't think anyone else could have have assumed the role that he did in this whole story because he he straddled those two worlds. So he would quote Aswath Damodaran, who's a an NYU finance yeah, the, professor. The, yeah, the the dean of valuation. So yeah, and so he's he's well known in in our world, but he's not known at all to these people, which is one reason he was ignored. And you know, if you yeah. if two people go on social media, and this is what I said about the virality of social media, we all know that things go viral, but we don't have a, a great understanding. And I spoke with social psychologists and social media experts and Silicon Valley people about how things go viral, and so it's by design, you know, uh, different social networks have uh, have different ways of achieving it, but it's all the same. And um, in the case of Reddit, it's a human algorithm. So let's say, Cole, that you and I were to use our anonymous names and, and go on to Reddit, onto some mm -hmm. message board. 
unlike uh, Twitter or Facebook, where we might have followers or not have followers, you know, you could be just Joe Schmo on Reddit and post something there. And I might say something crazy, like I just took out a second mortgage on my house and I bought deep out of the money calls on the stock. I'm betting my entire you know family's wealth on it. YOLO. Mm-hmm. Ha ha ha, you know, and put a bunch of rocket ship emojis on there. And then you <laughs> might express confidence in the same stock, but say, yes, uh, 5% of, uh, of my personal net worth is in this. I think it could go up, although here are the downsides and be very cerebral about it, as one should be, because, you know, that's the kind of the, the way to be, frankly. Uh, but your advice is, is more nuanced, right? But your advice is boring to that crowd. So it's not going to get upvoted. Mm-hmm. It might even get downvoted yeah. because you're kind of you're being a dweeb. And I'm being really risk taking and cool. And so when a third person shows up on that message board, not only will yours have been upvoted and our mind have been upvoted and, and have risen possibly to the very top and be seen by lots and lots of people, but yours will be invisible. So your your more cautious take, will, which is the more correct take, will be invisible. And that is the kind of crowd and place that Wall Street bets was. There's There are other boards there called R Investing, you know, they're kind of Warren Buffett aficionados and John Jack Bogle aficionados and all kinds of things, but not this board. This board was all about doing crazy stuff. It was like, you know, jackass for finance. Uh, you do crazy dumb stuff. And then and then it was funny. And then they embraced it. Like when people would lose money, it was, that was celebrated too. People would post pictures of having lost 98% of their portfolio. Ha ha ha. And in a lot of cases, it, it wasn't 98% of a large portfolio because remember, these were young people who were just getting started out for the most part. So they may have, you know, had $1,000 and now they had $20, right? So to kick back to the, the like the irony to the mascot, like you said earlier, I mean, you, you mentioned Keith Gill has a CFA charter, which is considered the gold standard and one of the highest ethical standards, you know, uh, broadly speaking in the industry. And yet that's all going on <laughs> via a person with a CFA charter. So I, I part it when I got done, you know, thinking about this, I thought, you know, and I, I'm a CFA charter holder myself. I thought maybe a CFA charter is just a license to kill. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and ironically, to summarize the last portion of what you said, you know, Buffett always says the market was created to move money from impatient people to patient people. In effect, Gil tried to be both an impatient person and a patient person at the same time, which is impossible. He made a thousand times his money at one point. I mean, he, you know, obviously he he was lucky too because he happened to pick the the right stock. His initial thesis, so there was, this stock was like dry kindling, you know, with little gasoline poured on it. You know, it just needed a match because the the consensus was so strong that it was a loser that it had been pushed down and down and down and uh, the short bets against it were so extreme that it left a very narrow window for escape. It's just that people were making those bets. It never occurred to them that there would be any kind of lasting squeeze. And what's the worst thing that could happen, right? I mean, someone shows up and says, oh, well, Best Buy says we're buying GameStop, you know, and um, and then it doubles in price or something, and you had a terrible month. You don't think it's going to go up hundred times or two hundred times in, in sure. price wow. uh, in a matter of months? That that's just not part of your calculus because why would it? Uh, it, it was just a, sort of like a total fat tail event, basically. Except it was engineered. It was an ambush. It was it was done deliberately. It was discussed openly. You can go back. I I have all the you know not all the passages. I mean, it would be a long book, you know, with a lot of, of appendices. But I, the key the key bits are are shown and summarized in terms of how they discussed it and who came up with it and things like that. And uh, I, I 
don't know who those people are. Nobody knows who those people are, although clearly there are people on that board who knew a thing or two about finance other than uh, than Keith Gill. And he was not the architect of it, by the way. You know, he I don't think that he did anything unethical, uh, although I, I think he should have maybe realized sooner what he was doing because his actions were were egging people on. A lot of a lot of money got incinerated uh, in the late stages of the story. Inflammatory. Yeah, well, Wall Street should have paid him to keep it going. Yeah. Spencer, it, if the meme stock people are kind of degenerates, what, what does that make the fame seekers like Michael Burry and Dave Portnoy uh, that, that work the other side? What, what are they? Well, Michael Burry shows up in the story, the value investor who became famous through uh, the big short. You know, he was very early. He was a very successful value investor just in stocks. And then he made uh, early but ultimately correct and very lucrative bet against housing during the great financial crisis. And, and he was he showed up as a big shareholder and he, he took his profits, took his profits a little early, but he took his profits. And then he said, you know, you guys are insane. You know, he he was really, you know, and he's come out since then. You know, his his uh, his handle on on Twitter is Cassandra, and he keeps mm-hmm. deleting his account. So he, he's a he's a weird guy. But there are other people who I think did unethical things. And you know, I I've been asked a bunch of times since the book came out, did anyone break the law? Yeah, I don't think I think some people who will never know who they are broke the law. The SEC will never bother to to go after them, and they sure. were largely small fry. Did Chamath Palihapitiya break the law? Did Elon Musk? break the law? Did Dave Portnoy break the law? These people were the cheerleaders who were cheering on this crowd to do dumb things in the market, sometimes just for their psychic benefit, sometimes for their financial benefit. In the case of Chamath, it certainly was because he benefited. He was the SPAC king. You know, he benefited a lot from his retail enthusiasm. <laughs> Elon Musk, he's become the richest man on earth really because of his, his ability to, um, in my opinion, to make himself influential online. You, you know, he's... Um, a stock is worth what people are willing to pay for it, and he has a, a, an aura about him. He's kind of a genius. He might be a genius in other things, but he's a real genius in terms of, of promotion, public opinion in the age of social media. So I, I don't think that that's very ethical uh, to enrich yourself or even to sort of to make yourself feel good uh, when you, you're smart enough to understand that people are going to get burnt. You know, Dave Portnoy, uh, who said he had bought one or two stocks in his life ever, all of a sudden he was a, came from the world of gambling, became Davey Day Trader during the pandemic. Yeah. And he would pick Scrabble tiles out of a bag until he got a stock ticker and do it live on Twitter to his two and a half million followers. And then <laughs> that stock. I mean, how dumb can you be? But, you know, but but this is during a time, remember, from the, the bottom of the pandemic bear market, and this is when a lot of people got into, you know, were young people home bored, opening up Robinhood accounts and whatnot, to a year later, 96% of American stocks rose. And, and the worse the stock was, the lower quality it was, the less profitable it, it was, the more, more likely it was to be in that 96%. And the more likely it was not to have just have gone up, but to have gone up a lot, you know, an index of profitless stocks far outperformed the Nasdaq composite or the S&P 500 during this period. So so for a while, it, it, it did work, you know, as long as you, you knew when to get out, which unfortunately people didn't. You have no idea how, how much you made my day by mentioning how they the media allowed these guys that were feeding the different speculative episodes uh, and treating them like they're some kind of wealth creating gurus. That was that was offensive to me after forty years of being the investor. Bill's business. beginning to sound like a boomer here, Spencer. Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> You do a really good job in the book also of kind of uh, uh, adding various studies to it um, on various things that were going on in, in different phenomena psychologically. Um, you point out a Washington State University study about confidence 
and followers. And you kind of touched on it a second ago, but can you explain this relationship from that study? Sure. Well, this was a study done some years ago where people, two um, you know, students studying economics, they're getting a PhD in economics, like as postdocs, actually. And um, they wanted to do a study about confidence in stock market predictions, but it, it was too difficult to, to track. So they found a lot more data and it's the same kind of thing. It's the same psychological phenomenon by looking at Twitter. And they looked at Twitter around the time of the World Series and the Super Bowl. And they, so they looked at you know billions of tweets, basically, by uh, disaggregated strangers. And they could that you definitely can see if someone's been accurate. You know, people will go on CNBC and say, I, I think this stock is going through the moon. You know, and then the next time they're on CNBC, if they got really got it wrong, they don't embarrass them by saying, hey, remember last time when you said you thought the stock was going to do really well and it didn't? You know, they, they ask them about the next thing. And so you're not really, if you're a, a financial pundit, you're very rarely, um, you know, held to your, uh, your predictions. But this, these sure. were anonymous people and they were making specific predictions like this team will win the, the series in six or this pitcher is going to do really well uh, or this team's going to going to cover the spread. And what they found was that the, the more confident you were, even if you were not accurate, the more Twitter followers you gained. So the more of a more influence you gained, whereas people who were more accurate but more cautious got a lot fewer followers. So there's similar to, to what we were discussing. And then, and there are other phenomena that come into it as well. There's, uh, there's social proof, uh, which is the whole Keith Gill phenomenon. You know, if you are very confident, uh, on, on wall street bets and do the crazy thing, like uh, the example I gave with you, you, you and me call, uh, then you'll get a lot of attention. But if I were to follow that up by then proving to you that I had made a lot of money, in the past or on that thing saying, oh yeah, I have a million dollars and I started out with a thousand dollars and I did this and that, then then people will really be interested in in what I did. And and that that explains the Keith Gill phenomenon because he on paper already at the beginning of his influence had made many multiples of his money and had been consistently confident. And uh, his attitude was uh, was not like um, like a lot of the people on the board. But then he, he basically went radio silent with the the, the kind of invest boring investing rationale for owning GameStop because GameStop, it went from two to four to 10 to 20 to 40, you know, at 40, that was, it was way past what he thought it was really worth. Sure. And he correctly surmised that there was a short squeeze going on and there was an opportunity to make much more money. He wasn't, he stopped making fundamental arguments. He just started posting memes and he was really good at it. And memes are, are how, that's why they're called meme stocks. The memes are how this, this generation that's very online on uh, forums like like Reddit, but not just Reddit, communicate and get their message across. And, you know, you if you look at Wall Street Bets, you'll see it's, it's full of emojis and memes and things like that, uh, which uh, are a very effective way of, of communicating there and a very cool, noticeable, viral way of communicating there. So that's that's what he did. He changed his tune, uh, became very influential because of social proof and because of of this kind of expression of confidence. Yeah, but confidence mm -hmm. is is what matters. And confidence is not does not correlate with accuracy at all. I'm going to quote the book, and one of our favorite books is John Kenneth Galbraith's A Short History of Financial Euphoria. Quote, you need a solid grasp of human psychology, which has hardly changed in the last 50,000 years, to dissect a financial mania, unquote. We agree with this statement, believe we're coming out of a mania. In fact, Munger calls it the, the biggest one of his career because of the totality. What books have helped you personally understand this phenomena, and why have so few people called this what it is? 
that's a two-part question. Uh, what books? So that that book is one of my faves. Uh, I reread it from time to time. I've got it on my my shelf. Um, I've got Kindleberger's Manias, Panics, and Crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, Vega's book uh, Confusion uh, Confusiones, which is basically like an old book about stock market. You know, I just mentioned like things have been written about this before. They sure. could be describing modern times. You know, in, in very archaic languages. Uh, you know, anything that's good about financial history. Uh, I've I've tried to read because I think you you need to understand that because human nature is is unchanging. Why was it not portrayed that way? Uh, so I, I I'm in the media. Um, I'm I'm the editor. I write from time to time, but I'm I'm the editor of the Hurt on the Street column. I, I understand how stories. You know, there, there's not a committee that sits down and says, "How do we pull the wool over? How do we get people excited?" <laughs> you know, the, the, the way that, first of all, journalism is the first draft of history. I'm sure you've heard that, right? So yeah, yeah. the first draft is not always the correct draft. So most people, I think, who who paid attention to this, unless they picked up my book or watched one of the form and counting documentaries that have been made about it, kind of stopped thinking about it soon after that time. So their their whole understanding of the story came from stories and headlines and late night talk show hosts and things like that, that were were at the time. And at the time, and I'll admit that my initial reaction to this was the same. My initial reaction, I wrote, after I told you the story of how it came to my attention, I wrote uh, an email to the acquisitions editor at at Penguin Random House. Uh, I just knew her name, and I figured out the email, you know, and I got the email suffix correct. Mm -hmm. And I had been working on uh, a couple of book proposals I wasn't very excited about. I just had them half written and thought maybe I would, you know, that's why I kind of had her name in my head. I sent her an email, and I told her this was happening and she said I, I haven't heard about that i said yeah you haven't heard about it but you're going to you're about to within hours you're going to hear about this this is a really big deal and the reason that i thought it was so interesting was just that it was i didn't think that the little guy can really get pulling over on wall street but i thought this would be one example where they did and it was just amazing to me that they had executed this corner or almost executed this corner uh in broad daylight in a way that's legal and, t- you know, 100 years after the last corner had ever really been legally executed in the United States, uh, accepting silver by the Hunt brothers, right, um, in, in 1981. Well, yeah, but, but, often, but often, Spencer, corners like using in the late 19th century, what followed corners was panics. And it, it isn't that kind of what we're staring at right now is somewhat of a panic followed by this mania. We definitely are. I think that uh, the, the I'm a firm believer that the it's not just numbers and lines on a chart. It's also psychology. And the psychology was so confident, say, a year ago today, a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. that um, because there was such a kind of a reinforcement of this buy the dip mentality and buy the shiny new thing and you know, trees grow to the sky, that the comeuppance that we're in the middle of right now is going to be equally severe. And it's not just a matter of, of numbers and dollars and the Fed's balance sheet. It's it's also, and, and we have not, I'm very confident that we have not seen the bottom. We have not seen capitulation what, what, because you have what, to have a real panicky, disappointing period uh, where, you know, people are kind of, you know, hate stocks or disgusted with stocks because the, the, the capitulation has to be uh, in, in proportion to the uh, to the mania. You're, you're saying is we had a nifty 50 or, or a mania like that, and you got to have 73, 74. To the punishment the must match the crimes. 
That, it, it just psychologically it, has to, it, right? Because yeah, it has you have to. to. Because this, it has to. It, it doesn't have to be 1929, and it doesn't have the economic no. consequences don't have to be as severe. But the the um, the emotional consequences do have to be as severe as they were on the other side of it. And so that's why uh, I, I wrote a, a piece for the journal back in in the summer when we were in. Uh, you know, people said, "Oh, we're in a new bull market." I said, "No, it's a bit clearly." <laughs> every sign points to this being uh, a sucker's rally, a bear market rally, of which you could have uh, multiple ones. You have had multiple yeah. ones yeah. during really big sell-offs because of different things. For example, uh, at that time, Kathy Wood's fund, um, ARK Investment Management, her, was still seeing inflows despite all, all the money that... I'm glad you said that, by the way, Spencer. No one says that. No one says no that. One, I'm, no one calls it a mania. No one says She's how weird the activity more capital is. than just about anybody we've ever seen. I, I was very excited about it, too. So like for about 24 hours i was like this is a crazy story i'm gonna i'm gonna write a book about it i'm gonna convince uh this publisher um you know i'm gonna i stayed up you know late into the night for two nights in a row and wrote a very very hasty rough uh pitch but in the process of writing it in the those 48 hours it's like you know what this is this is just like everything else this is and this you know the the real story here is that the little guy will end up losing a ton of money in this and the, mm-hmm. the, the later they get into it of course the more money they'll lose because they'll buy, be buying closer to the top and this is really just a bonanza for wall street and specifically as i tell in my story it's bonanza for market makers mm-hmm. like virtu and citadel securities and susquehanna and uh for brokers like especially robin hood but also e-trade and uh and their ilk you know they this was the kind of advertising that money cannot buy. They got people so excited. This got people so excited. They always try to get people excited because activity is how they get make money. Uh, but this was this was just you you couldn't engineer a, a more profitable, desirable scenario for them. And but as I tell in the story, it, it just got out of hand because of, of you know they just they did too good of a job basically. But um, yeah, I think the headlines at the time. Or 90% of them were Wall Street gets a black eye, the tables turned, will things ever be the same again? And a lot of people believe that. And then the more thoughtful takes come later. And people don't read the more thoughtful take as often. But the more thoughtful take, I think, is is often the correct take, right? I mean, once the dust is settled and you can sure. stop to think about it and you're not caught up in the excitement of the moment. And I, yeah. so I, yeah. I, I think yeah. my take is, is the unfortunately, the correct one, which is that you, even though there are unique elements to this, there are really different things psychologically and in terms of market structure and free trading, you know, and frictionless apps and things like that. It's the same old story. You know, they, they lost money, rich people made more money and, and corporate insiders too, by the way, yeah. in this case, you know, oh, yeah. people, rich people who are at the right place at the right time and rich people who stood to benefit from it and just couldn't believe their luck. That's, that's why it's called the revolution that wasn't. So since, since the, the children of the baby boomers had happened to them through this, what we did in the dot-com break, explain the genesis of Reddit and the Wall Street Bets subreddit. I think that the, the population of, of this group, so Reddit is a social media company founded by, you know, around the same time, within a year of Facebook being founded in a Harvard dorm room, it was founded in a, a University of Virginia dorm room by two roommates, just like Facebook, it was much less financially successful, still is much less financially successful because it's a different, it's a more, more difficult to monetize social medium. But it doesn't mean that it's not not very influential in some groups because it has about 100,000 subreddits. So instead of having followers like one would have on you know, LinkedIn or, or Twitter or Facebook uh, or TikTok uh, or YouTube, uh, it uh, it has different channels where anyone who's interested can participate and get karma and things like that. Like a bulletin and, and board. So, 
Yeah, and so it's it's I I like Reddit for not for this in particular, but like you know if you want to know about some kind of arcane thing, I mean gardening or uh, trail running or whatever, like you know you'll find like minded strangers and some of what they say is nonsense, of course, because it's random people on the internet. Don't you know? Don't bet your lot you know life. Don't you see a doctor if you're sick? Go see a doctor. Don't listen to Reddit, you know, but uh, or something like that. But it it's a I I, I like Reddit for that reason. I like Reddit for the, for the exact reason that it's not that profitable because anybody can kind of have a, a a voice on there and throw in their two cents. And there's some quite kind of good boards, even for investing, by the way. But um, yeah, it, the Wall Street Bets was was born around the time that Robin Hood was born. Um, Robin Hood was born in 2012. I think Wall Street Bets got its start uh, right around the same time. It was very small and obscure. And it was really a place to do, you know, where are we going to hack the, the financial markets? Where are we going to do crazy things? I, I spoke with this founder um, quite a bit. Uh, he's, he's no longer, you know, kind of with the group. He's out of their good graces. But he, you know, he was, he's, that, that's what he's all about. Uh, but he was very self-aware. Uh, Jamie Rogozinski. Um, and he um, really kind of explained the ethos of it. And it's interesting that the group changed, of course. Any group that you could think of like a religious group or a political group, and there's a small group of, of people who found it, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, a bunch of people are attracted to it. Well, the mm-hmm. people who are, uh, are attracted to it later on very often are more zealous than the people who originally were in the group. I, I don't know if you found that in your, your personal life, but like the people who are, are late to something are, are super duper serious about it. Someone who converts to a religion is, is more religious than the, the, the people who converted them to that religion. Uh, and, and that's what Wall Street Bets became like as it went from having a couple hundred thousand people to having now 11 million people is that the big growth in it was during this time that my story kind of reaches reaches its uh, its apex, and those people were in it to a lot of them not to make money but to hurt Wall Street. They their formative experiences were seeing their parents suffer during the financial crisis and Wall Street not really be punished. We can. De- talk about that all, all we want, but they saw Wall Street as the villain. They saw hedge funds, especially in, on Wall Street, as the villain. Not that they necessarily understood what hedge funds are or are about or whose money they manage, which are, you know, largely like college endowments and institutions and stuff like that and pension funds. But uh, And then short sellers were the most evil of all, right? Short sellers uh, were the devil incarnate. And so a short selling hedge fund on Wall Street, well, that's a guy you want to punch in the nose. And Financially, they had the means suddenly to punch them in the nose, and they, they cost one sure. hedge fund in particular losses of seven billion dollars within a matter of days. You know, so it, it, they they succeeded. But what they didn't understand is that Wall Street's a really big place. Most of Wall Street sure. really loved what they were doing, with the exception of a few people on Wall Street who had a terrible month. You know, when this was going on, they they loved it. It was a really profitable time for Wall Street, for Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and and most hedge funds. You know, it was it was like, you know, like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, there was money sure. just coming out of the, you know, ev- everywhere. Right. So let's get let's get to the let's get to the drug dealers here. So so Bat and Tenev, they, they start up, they start, you know, Robin Hood. OK, um, but that's not really what they were originally doing to get out to that business model. What can you explain what they were doing prior that eventually caused them to you know, create Robin Hood? Yeah, so they are uh they're both very clever guys. Uh they uh they met uh at Stanford University. Um Vlad Tenev, who's the CEO of Robinhood even today, uh was a, a PhD uh math student and uh his uh slightly older friend by Jubat uh was doing some work on Wall Street, convinced him to leave, and they were helping hedge funds make more money, trade more uh more effectively. They were kind of small time players uh out on the East Coast doing that. And they had the realization that 
if hedge funds can trade basically for free, because stock exchanges these days are really just big, you know, server farms, you know, out in New Jersey yep. or Kansas City or whatever, uh, why can't we do that for individuals? And there already had been some people who basically um, were, were starting to offer, quote unquote, free trades. Uh, but they decided that what they needed to do was have a really, really cool app. Uh, and they worked for a couple of years on this and they got a lot of buzz online and it went viral even before it was available. Robinhood had a million people waiting to open accounts before they had a product. And yeah. they kept testing this app. It was voted app of the year in 2015. It is a thing of beauty. It may look to, if you look at it now, it'll look quite familiar to you because there are a lot of other apps that, um, that have a similar look and, and feel. But it's very sure. frictionless, very colorful confetti and colors and you know and the, and and very strategically chosen fonts and colors by the way uh in my opinion that that's i'm this is the opinion of problem gambling experts you know who sure. know about gambling apps and and know about robin hood and um yeah and they unleashed it on the world and for five years before our story starts from the time they got started ha one out of every two brokerage accounts opened in the united states was opened with robin hood getting paid themselves for laying off the bets, not to a stock exchange, but to a market maker like Citadel Securities. Uh, and, sure. and so the more you traded, basically, the more money they made. So they were very interested in getting you to be active. They didn't care if you made money. Um, I, I prefer personally to deal with people who uh, whose interests are aligned with mine, who also would like to see me make money, not to sure. see me be, be very active. I mean, their, their model was like the old churn and burn st stockbroker model, basically. Just with better technology, you, you, you get it, Aaron. So you mentioned um, in your book, and I think this is a great point, and we've talked a lot about this, Spencer, so I just I love kind of thinking about this. You mentioned Aaron Levy's simplicity thesis. I joke often that the investment business is 20 years behind technologically, and you can find that almost in every case, I would argue. You know, you, if you look at most financial uh, websites outside of big banks, uh, they're going to look like about 2005, for example, okay. Um, can you explain what Levy's simplicity thesis is? And and you mentioned about the app. How much easier is it? Yeah. So his his thesis, and he's the um, founder of Box. He's a big investor in in. He's an original investor in in Robinhood, by the way. Um, and I spoke to some other people who were original investors who spoke to them when they were just getting the product going. Um, and his thesis is that whoever has the least friction in their product wins, that the more simple you can make something, the, mm -hmm. the better it is. And you had two things going on with Robinhood. One is that it was very intuitive, especially to, to young people who were growing up on smartphones. It was totally intuitive. It was much better. You know, you think about like E-Trade, which got, you know, it's called E-Trade, right? It didn't, it's not like Charles Schwab. It's not, you know, it's not Morgan Stanley, you know, that has you know, decades of, of history. It was E-Trade, but it got started during the dot-com era. It's way, way better or was way, way better than, than E-Trade's app because it was really an app first. It was an app and then they designed, then they came up with a brokerage firm to attach to it. And the simplicity and the fluidity of it uh, made it totally appealing. And it was designed, not just that though, this is what Aaron Levy did not write about, and and no one at, at Robinhood will really engage on this matter, or they'll they'll kind of poo-poo it. But the app is also designed to um, with all kinds of things that one sees in the gambling world. And I'm not saying I, I'm I'm just pointing this out. I'm not accusing them of, of being manipulative <laughs> here, but uh, I'm just pointing it out that the, the similarities are uh, are are there um, when you open the app. Is it important to you? 
to see what stocks are up and what stocks are down in a given day if you weren't really, you just were checking your account. It's not important, but but it is, it does induce a sense of FOMO. It's like, I'm missing out. I need to see what's going on. Ooh, maybe I can jump mm-hmm. on this thing. And and that's very much uh, the sense that I got speaking to with young people who were customers of, of Robinhood. That's, that's what they would get them to trade. And the fact that trading costs zero was really significant here. Uh, of course, we know it doesn't cost zero, right? There's a cost, you know, hidden in, in the, the, the trade because nothing's free in life. Sure. It can be cheap, but it can't be free. But it, it, there was zero dollar commission. And there is something called the zero price effect. When something fun, and people don't really think of trading stocks as fun, uh, which is why I guess all these other brokers never threw in the towel earlier and went to zero dollar commissions. They only all did it in 2019, very the end, very end of 2019, and then trading exploded. They thought it was going to cost them money and it made them money. Uh, that's what they didn't understand. Uh, when something is is free and it's fun, then you'll do way too much of it, and and that's kind of, you know, the, the nib of the story here is that they, they did way too much of it. There was way too much trading. There was a real explosion in retail trading. And we know uh, from many, many studies that uh, frequency of trading is inversely correlated with returns. Sure. You, 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 your portfolio is like a bar of soap. The more you rub it, the smaller it gets. Yeah. So in this in this discussion, Spencer, you, you talked you talked a lot about kind of the different ways people get financial advice in your book. Back to your point about really making it to where you know anyone's mother could read this book and understand it. Um, uh, and when you go to talk about this, how much would you say of good financial advice? And this is to your point about what the what Robinhood doesn't stop. How much of good financial advice is just ensuring people don't destroy themselves? In, in other words, the advice only removes the worst case scenario. It's it's really an uphill struggle. Uh, I think I, I've had many conversations over the you know the kind of thirty years that I've been like associated in one way or another with finance with friends, relatives, neighbors, you know, who bring it up. You know, I, I'm sure. not out there. I don't. I don't. I'm not a financial advisor, you know, college roommates and things like that who tell me something uh, that they're doing financially that uh, I find alarming. Um, And even though I'm their friend or mom is their friend or they're my neighbor or they know that I've been doing this for a while and probably know more about it than them, it's very, very, very hard to um, get someone to to stop doing something dumb when they they think that they're going to be rich and doesn't doesn't matter how smart they are you know uh i mean they're doing something dumb it doesn't mean that they're dumb i mean smart people there's nothing illegal with being stupid yeah it doesn't mean you're stupid at all but um but people are very confident that's why you know dentists are the the classic sort of mark for uh, a shady broker uh because you have to be um pretty smart to to get into dental school and to to get through it and of course then you once you've been a dentist for a while you um it's a lucrative career you've got a bit of money and so you you know that you're smart, but you're smart about drilling cavities. You're you're not smart about yeah. uh, about picking stocks. And but it's easy to to fool yourself to thinking you are, especially if you've had early success. And that's why bull markets are so dangerous uh, because they they foster confidence. You know, you, I think people would be much better off doing something really boneheaded and money losing is the first thing they ever do financially uh, than than having you know hitting a total home run by accident. Um, Get them off on the right foot. That, is- that confidence is, is is dangerous. You know, so yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 very very hard. Where should people get advice? I mean. That, that's the thing is like, let's say we were talking about exercise and I had an exercise plan, Cole, that was like um, this, this, you're guaranteed to be healthy. 
uh, fit and whatever, and this involves sitting on the couch and eating potato chips and not doing anything. You'd be like, where do I sign up? Like, it's great. And it'll say it worked, right? And and the the kind of the secret in investing is, I think for most people, is this sort of, you know, fair, you know, you have to save, of course, that's the first step. But once you've you've done that, assuming you you have the discipline and the income to to save, the less you do, the cheaper you are, you know, you, uh, and and the less you do, the better you will do in the long run. There's a, uh, it's just crystal clear from from every serious study out there that people who um, sometimes will forget that they they bought something uh, for many years are pleasantly surprised. And the more often you look, um, and it's a thing called myopic loss aversion, the more often you look, the more likely you are to see that you've lost money or that you made money and then you can buy something else. Uh, sure. And so look, even checking your, your investments infrequently is good. And Robinhood, we know, it's active customers during the time that I described. We're checking their that, accounts seven yeah. times a day. That leads us right into the personifications of investing that, that these effectively look like gambling commercials or like a Las Vegas advertisement. Connect that, those dots up with the way the stimmy checks uh, probably were closely connected to what went on with this, this mania. Yeah, so you had, everything was, was already very frothy going into the pandemic. Then you had this most rapid collapse in history from an all-time high uh, into a bear market. You had a 34% collapse in, um, in the S&P 500 between late February and, and late March. And to you and I, you know, who have, um, you know, savings already uh, to a, let's say, a, a middle-aged, uh, middle-class person, that's distressing. You've seen your, the, the amount of money in that financial statement you get each month or that you can check online go way down. And, and you don't know about this, this pandemic. Of course, no one knew, you know, how bad or how long it would be or how long it would take to have a vaccine. So it was a highly scary, uncertain time. But for these people who were opening millions of accounts, and the reason they opened millions of accounts is they, they all of a sudden they, they, they went from working or being in college or whatever to being at home or being at their, in their apartment with their friends or home with mom and dad. They had nothing to spend money on. You know, young people, I'm the dad of three young people, so I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry to stereotype, but like they spend money as soon as they make it often going out. All of a sudden they had nothing to spend money on. So relative to their wealth, which might've been negative wealth before that, they all of a sudden had savings. And then they got stimulus checks for nothing. And then they mm-hmm. got, uh, so a lot of them got uh, enhanced unemployment benefits. So their, their liquid net worth went up a whole bunch during a time that they were bored at home, staring at their phones for hours, sure. going through social media. And all of a sudden, there were all these financial influencers or finfluencers who were like, hey, open up an account. And the way that Robinhood specifically, and, and others have, have mimicked this, uh, gets customers is, is very clever. It's like a multi-level marketing scheme almost, where if you open an account, you get a mystery share of stock. Now, I would love to get a mystery a share of Berkshire Hathaway, for example, which is sure, like three hundred. Sure. You're not going to get that one though. Now they're not going to give you that for opening a twenty dollars account, but they may have given you an eighty dollars stock and you only put twenty dollars in. All of a sudden, you know, you 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 have a hundred dollars, you know, from a twenty dollars investment. Usually, it was a smaller stock, but it was like a. But but that but Spencer, that's a, that's like the drug dealer getting you high the first time, right? Just to make sure that you come back and and buy more. That's right. And it's uh, and not only that, but he'll give you another hit if you sign up a friend. Every time you bring in a friend, you get another <laughs> and it's like, a, and, you know, it's like a sweepstakes because you don't know what you're going to get because you might get, sure. that, so, I don't know, you might get a share of Tesla if you're lucky. Right. 
Well, so the, the, the other thing that was different about their pricing model too, you, and you, and I, I, you know, since I'm not a, a, a Robin hood person, I'm, I'm like the, the geriatric millennial is what I refer to myself as. Um, uh, so there were two kinds of accounts you explained. There was an instant account and a gold account and maybe the weirdest pricing scheme and kind of benefit scheme that I've ever heard in a brokerage uh, firm. So could, could you kind of briefly explain what the difference in those two accounts were? Sure. Well, act, actually three kinds of accounts. So you could open up an account and the default setting, and as we know, people tend to choose the default setting and everything. There's, uh, you mm-hmm. know, that's the, how things are, are designed. You know, if the, the you, you nudge, it's called the, the, you know, nudging people into something. And the default uh, design was not a margin account, but it was um, not a, a cash account. It was an instant account. So let's mm-hmm. say uh, you're sitting, I don't know, I'm, gonna, I'm stereotyping again. Sorry. You're like, you're at a uh, frat party with your friend who's like, hey. You make this sound so mature. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. But, okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, uh, you're speaking, you're, like, you're you taking know, my heart hey, open up an account. <laughs> I'll get a free share of stock and you'll get a free share of stock. And this is really good. Robinhood is the best. I made a bunch of money last month. Uh, sure. Like, oh, okay. And then you go on your phone and, I, and it, it, it's very easy to open an account. Of course, then you have to set up um, a, a wire from your bank, which is not that hard to do these days either. But as you know, if you've opened a, a brokerage, for anyone listening who's opened up a retail brokerage account, it's not like the money is there right away. It takes a few days. Most of them, you have to fill out some forms to actual paper forms, not uh, online forms, although some a lot of them have migrated online. But it, they made it as, as easy, as smooth as possible. But they also, unless you chose the other, the non-default setting, you could trade right away. So let's say you're like, oh, you know, I've been thinking about buying the stock. Well, if you wait three days before the money is actually cleared and is in your mm-hmm. account, you might have just totally forgotten about that or, or the, the idea passed out of your head. But since you, they, they basically said, yeah, we know the money's coming. Here, here's that money, trade. Uh, so it's not margin, but they credited you for your money that had not yet arrived. Mm-hmm. And then there was the gold account, which... Um, you know, cost $5 a month. And that was, um, that allowed you to have margin and that allowed you to have, uh, at the time that I wrote about it, it might've changed. I haven't checked recently. The first thousand dollars was on them. No, no interest on the first thousand dollars. Of course you do the math. I mean, it's, it's not worth it at all. Sure. You're paying five bucks a month and you're, you know, you're, you're paying $60 a, a year at a time when interest rates were, you know, 0.25%. So they weren't like, you know, they weren't losing money on that, but it was sure. a way to entice you. But the first thousand dollars was on them, and then they charged you kind of, actually, kind of at the time, kind of high margin interest rates. Uh, so, but yeah, but the but most many people did opt for that. A surprising number. They were surprised how many people opted for the gold account. But uh, but the vast majority of people wanted to, the instant account, um, which uh, allowed you to trade right away. So you didn't have to think about it. You opened an account and you started trading. You know, and that, and that that played a role in this meme stock squeeze because people who were opening accounts, there was a day that they opened a million accounts on Robinhood during this episode. I mean, they had a million accounts when they first started, which was amazing. But then there was a day when they opened a million accounts in a day during the meme stock squeeze. You're touching at a theory that we've talked a lot about, and I, I call it, or our rough term for it is the consumption theory. Um and, and they're interesting to think about because your point about this free and you get excitement out of it and you use more of it. So um, our theory is if you pay a fee for a service in today's internet, you consume it, right? In other words, something you pay for, you consume it. If you don't pay a fee, 
it consumes you. <laughs> um, the theory seems to fit almost perfectly because to, to your point, even when they paid, they were getting something free, which was you know a thousand dollars of margin. And the reality is it was going to consume them nonetheless because of that free thing. It, would you agree with that as you look at other places? I mean, it, as we move outside of Robinhood, I think of like what are things that draw me in on the internet in digital ads and other things where I'm not paying anything. At the same time, is it consuming my time, which is worth real money? Yeah, I think that the, the same thing is, it's a cliche by now, you know, uh, with social media. You know, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product, Right. And I, I think this very same thing applies to uh, to Robinhood and other brokerages uh, using that business model, because it, if you're not paying, then they're getting the money somewhere. Uh, in the case of Facebook, they're getting very useful information about you to advertisers, uh, all the pictures of your kids and your family and all the social connections. They have a tremendous amount of data. Data is the new oil, right? And so they're getting very useful stuff, even though no one would ever think to pay for Facebook. Uh, mm -hmm. But then people also don't stop to think about how it's this uh, tremendously, well, not recently, but, you know, tremendously profitable company and other social media firms as well. And sure. I think the same thing extends to this. Think about how people are getting paid. You should, Whenever you deal with someone financially, you should think about how they're getting paid. And uh, in, in my opinion, you should prefer people who get paid on the back end, not on the front end. Uh, for example, um, I, I have to be a pretty big fan of, of robo-advisors for young people, people who are too, have too little money and who are uh, savvy enough, cyber savvy enough to have uh, an algorithm, basically to send their money to, you know, something like Betterment or Wealthfront or, and, and there are a bunch of other ones, uh, and then have it manage a portfolio of index funds for them. I've, you know, I should get commissions for those guys. I've sent so many young, young people to, you know, just said you should find a robo-advisor and given them like just a list off the top of my head. And sure. I think it's a really good thing and they'll manage your portfolio. Well, those robo-advisors are generally pretty good, but like a like a normal financial advisor, uh, that's a human. Um, you know, they they do well when you do well. They do better when you do better. Sure. And it takes a long time to make money. As a matter of fact, you initially lose money on a customer. You have to sign them up and set things up. And then, but then, you know, you the relationship is should should be profitable for uh for customer and, and advisor. That's really the way things ideally Munger. should be. Uh, you know, if you're dealing with Char an honest Char person. Charlie Munger calls it ignorance avoidance, I think is what you're getting at there. Uh, expl explain what loss porn is on the Reddit forums. Well, loss porn is very interesting. That, that, was, uh, that was a real revelation to me as well. I'd, I'd looked from time to time, at, but not enough, at Wall Street Bets until I spent a year living in it. Uh, mm -hmm. And loss porn is, um, you know, think about, I don't know, the way that, um, and I've got a couple of them in my house, uh, men in their young 20s uh, behave around their friends, you know, and that let's say they, they do something and then they fall out of a tree or something and get hurt, but not too badly. You know, it's hilarious, right? It's really, really funny. Uh, it's, it's, you know, they did something reckless, something bad happened. They didn't die. They, maybe they broke a bone or got a mm -hmm. bruise or whatever. And if it's on video, it's like, it goes viral, right? Uh, of someone doing something dumb. It's like, it's, that's why Jackass is, is so successful. And uh, on Wall Street Bets, people had this real ethos of, of openness. Of course, you could never know if things were real, uh, but you had people who would uh, live stream, like they would bet on some discrete event, uh, like Apple earnings. There's, and there's a kind of an infamous video on there of someone betting his entire net worth 
on uh, options, um, put options um, that were expired right after Apple earnings and then losing everything mm-hmm. and having a nervous breakdown on video. Uh, and I have a, a screenshot of it in my book of the, of the video. I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but, uh, you know, but that, <laughs> that was kind of, that, that is cool. So even if you go on and do something, the fact, the knowledge that if you do something crazy and it works, well, money is nice. You made money, right? Uh, you made a lot of money from a little bit of money. And if you lost all your money, well, you didn't have that much money in the first place, probably. And you can post a screenshot of it and then you get kind of street cred or social credibility on this network. So, yeah, that's that's what lost porn is. You do a wonderful job of, of explaining the history of brokerage commissions in your book. Start from pre-75 and walk us quickly forward on this subject now. Sure. Well, it, you know, the, you, you all should know or or should read or be familiar with a book called Where the Customer's Yachts, written by um, a, a lapsed stockbroker named Fred Schwed. Very funny, probably one of the funny, the, the funniest book, I think, about Wall Street. And it's totally accurate today, even though it was written in 1941. Um, and it's really about like, you know, why, why, and I guess Warren Buffett has a quote, you know, along this line, you know, Wall Street is the pla- place where people in Rolls Royces get advice from people who take the subway. But mm-hmm. uh, but what he, he pointed out is like this old anecdote that go, dates back to maybe the early 20th or late 19th century is like, you know, someone went to Wall Street when there was a marina down there and admired all the nice yachts. And so who do they belong to? And like, they belong to the brokers. They were getting so rich. So Wall Street was a small, clubby, really lucrative place. You had to have a lot of money to play there. And then it was very expensive to transact. So you see these, I, you know, I, I've written about it, and you know, but you see these charts, like if you had invested a dollar in 1926 and just held on, you'd have $10,000 or whatever, you know, and buy sure. and hold. Well, it's not really accurate because you couldn't do that. Even reinvesting dividends cost money. Certainly buying another share of stock cost a lot of money. Uh, Wall Street was just a really, really expensive place. You had to, to be somewhat wealthy to really to play. And, uh, and then brokers had these fixed commissions until 1975. Finally, they were just forced to give them up. And that, it, it took a few years, but then you had the rise of, of companies like Charles Schwab that were discount brokers that made it much, much cheaper for mom and pop to transact. It really wasn't worth the trouble of brokers for like a person with a little bit of money to be their customer until sure. discount brokerage came along. And then it, you know, that $50 and $30. And then, you know, by the time of the dot-com era, it was 10 or $15. Then in, in recent years, prior to the pandemic, with the exception of Robinhood and, and those kinds of companies, it was 5 to $7 to, to trade, which is, you know, just dramatically cheaper. And you, and it became cheaper because you weren't, you know, used to trade in eighths of a dollar. Now you're trading in, in pennies, right? So it, it has become much cheaper to transact. And you have, of course, index funds, which I, I'm a big fan of. You know, you can buy uh, SPY and basically own the S&P 500 in a very tax-efficient package for 0.03% a year or the total stock market index or, or whatever, right? Or a bond sure. index, pretty cheap. So it, it the, the cost of transacting on Wall Street has come down by orders of magnitude. So you really, you really advocate in your book, to your point, uh, you know, uh, uh, for passive investing at times. But you know, in our discussion today, you've you've pushed a healthy amount of skepticism, I would say, for the returns that are begotten out of this mania. So I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something, and I'd love to, for you just to kind of comment because it's I, I think you're you're getting at um, what could almost be. Um, 
uh, it, you, almost disagreeing arguments. But let me, so we look at Spencer. We look at St. Louis Fed data, and they have a wonderful data point in the St. Louis Fed, um, and it gets at you mentioned psychology at the start of our discussion. Um, it's called equities as a percentage of U.S. household financial assets, and the data set goes back to like 1952 when the Fed began recording it. And why we like the statistic is because at high points in the statistic, it's a nightmare for stock investors. And at low points, it's a dream because it, there's an inverse relationship between the ownership of stocks by U.S. households and the forward returns. So I, I say that because, you know, someone reading this book, I agree with you that there's a lot of people that aren't going to be a good investors. That's why for people that are, it could be so profitable. At the same time, at a juncture like today, um, we just came off the highest ownership of equities ever in that data set. And if you look at the correlation, it argues that there's either going to be zero returns or possibly negative returns beginning in 22. A low-cost CD might be the winner in the next 10 years. So I, I guess, so so track with me here because like you're, you're, you have a healthy se- sense of skepticism of what's going to go on. And like we agree, I mean, like everything you're saying earlier about the lows aren't in, you're right, you're right, you're right. But the passive S&P isn't the way to succeed in this era if you're right about that. Temporarily, just in, in some phases. So I, I, I work at the Wall Street Journal. I, I can't, um, just because of my job, I edit things about so many companies. I, I don't sure. own individual stocks. Um, you know, I wish that I could because I, I'm fascinated by, uh, by investing. I really, really sure. uh, love writing about it, talking about it, thinking about it. You know, I have all kinds of paper portfolios that have been running for years. You know, that, um, of course, a paper portfolio is e- you know, easier than a real one. You know, I'm a genius sure. on paper, uh, but it's harder when you actually have to, to you know, do it with real money. I, I acknowledge that. Um, I, I think that I'm a columnist. I can go ahead and, and say this. I think that you're you're basically correct in terms of like a 60-40 portfolio today, even with bonds, bond yields having spiked a bit recently, you you probably make very little money. You you you'll after inflation, like you'll make zero or negative. If we add inflation, by the way, uh, you know, if it, let's just say this is a 70 style era, even then the S and P made mid mid single digits. It was like almost six percent, and after inflation, it lost four to five percent. And Given like if we go to that St. Louis Fed data, it would argue it's probably negative returns if the data correlates like it has in the past, and that's before counting the inflation we just saw. So, um, so I because I because I you know I agree with you. I mean, we're huge fans, Spencer, of common stocks. Like we love common stocks; they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I, I, I was born owning stocks. I'm going to die owning stocks. It's just such a th- great thing to do. To your point, to be a, a participant in this great American success. Right, no question. Um, at the same time, there's no guarantee in a 10-year stretch that a- anyone gets out alive after after inflation. No, there there isn't. I mean, and this is, I mean, obviously, is departing somewhat from the the thesis of the book. But of course, I am a big advocate of passive investing. But look, the way that first of all, you don't know that. That's that's what the math says. But the math could be different. You could, correct. For example, um, if you know, you want to own what's less bad, right? If you, if your, if your investment universe is limited to a variety of, uh, of passive vehicles, let's say, um, and someone said to me, well, what's the, are we going to have deflation or inflation in the next 10 years? What's more likely? Well, obviously some kind of runaway inflation is the, the tail event, right? It's just sure. on the extreme more than we've, we've had now. I mean, I think that's, there's no, 
there's no question that that's the the greater danger. So what do you want to own? Do you want to own assets or do you want to own liabilities? Well, I think um, I think being especially if you're young. Uh, anyway, but but especially now, uh, being more stock heavy makes sense. Second of all, the way that most people invest, they don't have a, a lump sum that they inherited from a rich uncle, and then they put it into the market and hope that it's worth more in 10 years. They're saving every month. And so we're going to have uh, probably uh, lower lows and maybe much lower lows in the next 10 years. And you don't know when the lows will be in because it's unknowable. It's fundamentally mm-hmm. no one, you know, people pine all the time, but no one, no one can really predict that. Uh, anyone who could predicted wouldn't wouldn't say right you're going to be in investing at at much lower valuations at some point probably in in coming years and and that at more much more attractive valuations dollar cost averaging is what yeah, you're, talking you're saying about. it's better to be a, a, a millennial than a baby boomer right now right i mean so yes uh, clearly uh you you have to you know that that's that's your expertise not mine but you have to consider when you need the money, what your situation is, if you have so much money that you're really just going to sort of, you know, because like, for example, there are 80 year olds uh, for whom it's it's advisable to be they have so much money that it's advisable to be all in on stocks because their their money is basically for their grandchildren to inherit. So they their time horizon should be their grandchildren's time horizon. Like you can't there's no what there's the sort of you know, your age, you know, minus whatever. That's just a very crude rule of thumb. Everyone has a different situation. Uh, but if you know nothing about stocks, and most people know nothing about stocks, and they don't need to be an expert on stocks, I don't think that that you know that that getting. I mean, I like I happen to like it and enjoy it, but most people's eyes glaze over. You know, you know that. I mean, you go to like a talk to to your friends who are outside the, the stock market, and you know, beyond the what should I buy, they, they don't they don't really want to get into the sort of the, the the really important kind of minutiae of of investing. You know, here's the irony, and and, and like I said, we're stock people, and, and- you know, everything about this discussion is fun and, and, and we loved your book because it's all about stocks. But the funny part is as the stock people, if someone put a gun to my head, Spencer, and said, Cole, you get the S&P 500's 10-year return or you can buy a 10-year treasury today, I would buy the 10-year treasury because I guarantee I get four, <laughs> right? In other words, that's a great return, I think, you know, all, all things equal. I take the other one, honestly, um, because let's say... Um, yeah, you're guaranteed to get four, but you don't you don't know anything about the purchasing power. Well, but you're going to lose purchasing power on either investment, right? You're you're going to lose it on either investment because of inflation. It's it's going to erode the effects. No, no, because because that is a tail risk that you can hedge for. So because people think about the 1970s as such a terrible time, you know, of course you had two energy crises, you had uh, you had a lot of other issues, and you started out in 1966. You know, you had very high valuations. In 1982, the Dow Jones Industrials were at the same exact price, but at very low valuations, right? So mm-hmm. you actually did have earnings growth, and you had rapid inflation. It's just the stocks went from one not extreme but very high level to uh, six times earnings, six times earnings at the end. Yeah, six yeah, times so, earnings. Right. And so, but so people think of that time, and they they automatically associate inflation with poor equity returns, but that's that's actually not true. If you look at the 19th century, inflation was uh, was almost uniformly good for equity returns. Uh, if you lived in Zimbabwe, um, and I'm not saying we're going to go the way of Zimbabwe, but if you lived in Zimbabwe, you know there were years when Zimbabwe was the best performing stock market on earth in nominal terms, not in real sure. terms, right? So. What would you rather have owned? Uh, you know, a Zimbabwe central bank note, assuming they would actually <laughs> honor it and pay you back uh, over that the period of that one year, or Zimbabwean stocks? Well, clearly, 
stocks because stocks are companies with assets that are real, with liabilities that also get uh, get whittled away with inflation. And, and so if, if the tail risk that you are are worried about, and it is one that I'm, it's not, I'm not saying that it's going to happen, but it's one that I'm worried about, is some kind of very rapid pickup in inflation. The, the Fed says, hey, we're going to stop this tightening because we're driving the economy off a cliff. And, uh, you know, some kind of crisis emerges. Uh, you know, we, we, inflation might become the norm, right, for a while. And so mm-hmm. uh, in, in that case, what's the less bad thing? Um, obviously, you don't have to choose one investment or the other. But I think it's, um, I think it's foolish not to have some significant equity component in your in your savings, given the the possible future outcomes. I mean, better to have 80% of your real purchasing power after a decade than to have 20%, right? So, and and that could happen. It, it's not it's not impossible that that would happen. So that's that that's this is obviously very straying very far from the book, and this is just my my personal opinion, not that of the Wall Street Journal or anything like that. But sure. that's uh, that's how I I see things, and. Um, and so obviously I'm not 100% in equities. I'm uh, about to turn 53. Uh, I do have, you know, my time horizon is somewhere between you and your dad, I guess, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and I have kids still to go to college and all that stuff. But, I, you know, equities are not, not, not too bad. Of course, they, I think I, I agree that they're, they're at a very high historical valuation uh, for sure. Um, but what can you do? I mean, there's, you can buy value stocks, which I do. I buy, you know, all kinds of value funds. So I, I look at my funds and if I see a, a Tesla in there, if I see a whatever, you know, in, in the in the index, then I don't don't buy it, don't own it. Although funnily enough, I uh, actually I own a, uh, an index ETF uh, that owned um, a, both AMC and GameStop, but the two stocks I read about here for a long time. And that's because they were, this is like the dumbest thing. Like they were the two biggest holdings in the... Um, Russell too, or small cap value fund. Sorry, um, because they had appreciated so much. Um, so yeah, so I, I owned a little bit of those <laughs> indirectly. But so, so Spencer, we 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 didn't we didn't talk about. I just wanted to mention some things for, uh, for the listeners. We didn't talk about um, the option pricing uh, and and how the gamma effect prices, which I think you do such a good job in the book. Um, we also didn't talk about. Um, Ken Griffin's cozy relationship with making money on these folks and at the same time feeding money across the hedge funds that were getting destroyed. So I, I again, like I said earlier, I, I think you do such a great job of uh, you know talking about this to the layperson. Um, I really appreciate you joining us today. Um, if you want to understand the power of a mania, that is once in a generation, I would argue, you need to get a copy of Spencer's book, The Revolution That Wasn't. Um, it's such a good read. I highly recommend it, um, to understand the meme stock craze of 2020 and 2021 and people like Keith Gill and Chamath and, and all these people we've talked about for our audience. If you have a great book that you'd like to recommend email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for a book with legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.